1 Samuel chapter number 6, if you'll take your Bibles and turn there, 1 Samuel chapter number 6. <clears throat> First Samuel in chapter number six message uh, tonight somewhat in, in a way relates even to this morning, this morning for those that were working in other places and, and of course, teen church and junior churches and so forth. We were in Matthew seven thirteen and 14 primarily about the straight gate and the narrow way as opposed to the wide gate and the broad way. And, um, and what God expects of us. And so there, there's a connection there that I'm not going to spend time on, but it, as you look sometimes at how things line up on a Sunday, it's encouraging to see how that works out, I believe, providentially. And um, I'm not sure exactly just how much of, of uh, a certain aspect of this message that I'm going to have opportunity to preach, but there's something the Lord's been working in my heart, and, and I hope it'll come out uh, tonight and then probably follow up on it in, uh, in messages even to come. So let's just go ahead and read the text and, and hopefully that'll make more sense to you here in just a minute. The, and the ark of the Lord, I'm in verse one, we're just going to go ahead and read the chapter here. So follow along as we read verse number one, chapter six, first Samuel, when a nation needs revival. And here we are in chapter six and verse number one, and it says, and the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners saying, what shall we do to the ark of the Lord, tell us wherewith shall we send it to his place? They were ready to send it back because it had caused them a bunch of problems. For sure. They were uncomfortable with God's presence. I know another nation that's uncomfortable with God's presence as well. Verse 3, and they said, if, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, of the God of Israel, send it not empty, but in any wise... Return him a trespass offering, then shall you be healed, and it shall be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. They have this national crisis, and God's hand is on them. And they said, then said they rather in verse 4, what shall be the trespass offering which we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden emeralds and five golden mice. Images. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for one plague was on you all and on your lords. Wherefore, ye shall make images of your emeralds and images of your mice that mar the land, and ye shall give glory unto the God of Israel. This is a strange trespass offering, to say the least. Peradventure, he will lighten his hand from off you and from off your gods and from off your land. So he's affected you, your gods, and your land. Wherefore then do ye harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts. They'd heard about that. When he had wrought wonderfully among them, did they not let the people go and they departed? In other words, they're saying we need to let God go. Let the Ark of the Covenant go. The Ark symbolizing God's presence. Verse 7, Now therefore make a new cart and two milch kine on which there hath come no yoke and tie the kine to the cart and bring their calves home from them and take the Ark of the Lord 
and lay it upon the cart and put jewels of gold, which she returned him for a trespass offering in a coffer or a chest by the side thereof and send it away that it may go. And see if it goeth up by the way of his own coast to Beth Shemesh. Then he hath, then he hath done us this great evil. But if not, if it doesn't go to Beth Shemesh, then we shall know that it is not his hand that smote us and it was a chance that happened to us. <laughs> I mean, they're still trying to say God didn't do this. Well, he did. Verse 10. Everybody still following along? And the men did so and took two milch kine and tied them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they laid the ark of the Lord up on the cart and the coffer with the mice of gold and the images of the emeralds. And the kine took the straight way, the straight path. I mean, these are straight path cows. <laughs> the kind took the straight way to the way of Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went. And they turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them unto the border of Beth Shemesh. So they want to see how this goes. And they of Beth Shemesh were reaping in the harvest. Okay, now we're in verse 13. They were reaping in the, uh, their wheat, wheat harvest in the valley. And they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. And the ark came into the field of Joshua, Beth Shemite, and stood there where there was a great stone. And they clave the wood of the ark, uh, ark, no, hang on, of uh, the cart, <laughs> Sorry, that would have been death on the spot. <laughs> they claved the wood of the cart and offered the kind a burnt offering unto the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the coffer that was in it, wherein the jewels of gold were and put them on the great stone and the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifice, sacrifices the same day unto the Lord. I mean, it just seems like this is awesome. And when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. And these are the golden emeralds which the Philistines returned for a trespass offering unto the Lord. For Ashdod one, for Gaza one, for Ascalon one, for Gath one, for Ekron one. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fenced cities and of country villages, even unto the great stone of Abel, whereon they set down the ark of the Lord, which stone remaineth unto this day in the field of Joshua the Beshemite. wonder how God felt about all this. They're rejoicing. They set the ark up on top of a prominent place so everybody can see it. So am I seeing a problem with this? They say, well, no, I mean, that's great. Everybody can see it. Well, look at verse 19. And he, God, the Lord God, he smote the men of Beth Shemesh 
because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Even he smote of the people 50,000 and threescore and 10 men. 50,070 men died right then. The Philistines had killed 34,000. God killed 50,070. And the people lamented because the Lord had smitten many of the people with the great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, please notice verse 20. I believe it's a key to the whole chapter. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall he go up from us? And they sent messengers to the inhabitants of kirjath Jerem, saying, The Philistines have brought again the ark of the Lord. Come ye down and fetch it up to you. All right. So I realize that's a lot, and I would imagine we could divide it into two parts. Uh, but I, I really had the sense that we need to get this all together. We need to get the sense of it all together. So the title of the message here tonight, and of course our series, for those that may be new here or visiting here, our series through the book of 1 Samuel is When a Nation Needs Revival, and here's the title tonight, Those Uncomfortable and Those Too Comfortable with God. A warning, really, to those uncomfortable and those too comfortable with God. May God bless the reading of His Word as you're seated, then we'll get right to it here tonight. <clears throat> Trevor, you want to help me? <clears throat> all right. I thought we might play a little catch here. Tonight, is that all right? Um, actually, I'm preaching on reverence, and I don't, I'm not sure that I should throw this ball in here, so I'm not going to. Probably best. Plus, if he threw it back and I might miss it, that wouldn't go great, right? Let's, let's say we're going to play uh, some baseball together, you know, and, and I've got, you know, I mean, obviously, we've been hitting this ball a little bit. It's been beat up a little bit, you know, um, but, you know, to be able to play this particular game, I decide, you know, but I think we need a special ball. Okay. We're not going to, is this going to offend you if I throw this? Okay. You're going to catch it. So we're throwing ball here and we're having a, having just a game of pitch. Kind of, I haven't lo loosened up yet, so. <laughs> and, um. But then I decided, hey, I got an idea. To help us win this game, instead of just using this regular ball, let's do this. So go to my office. <laughs> he just put the glove down. He's out. <laughs> this is a Mickey Mantle autograph ball. Okay. Um, Coach Thomas, many of you know Coach. He came to me one day and he said, uh, Brother Jason, who's the greatest baseball player of all time? And I failed the quiz. <laughs> he said, really, it's got to be Mickey Mantle. In terms of his athleticism and ability on the field, had he not had an injury, I mean, he, he made the case and I believed him. But this, he said, I met Mickey Mantle and I'd like to give you this ball. So, I mean, this is, this is, this is very special. Mickey Mantle from Oklahoma, for those of you who maybe didn't know. 
So I say to Trevor, Trevor, we're, uh, we're going to win this game today because we're going to play... We're going to play with the Mickey Mantle ball today. Some of you are cringing right now, aren't you? You're cringing, aren't you? <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> just, just don't do it. The Oklahoma kid touched this ball, right? Mickey Mantle touched that ball. Mickey Mantle autographed that ball. But, I mean, really, you'd say, hey, it's just a baseball. In that sense, it's no different than this baseball. But what makes it different? Who signed it? And who gave it to you? Um, in fact, Trenton, as we were talking about it, we're going to involve him in this pitching thing, too. But uh, he said, you know, when you think about it, it's just ink on a ball. Oh, that was pretty profound. It's just ink on a ball. That's all it is. I mean, so I take my pen. <laughs> Can we still play with that one? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. See? <laughs> so we can't play with that one. We'll play with this one. But okay. It's just ink on a ball. I don't, I don't mean to use the word wrongly, but... Could we say that this, is, this one has some sacredness about it? And what does sacred mean? Well, it means set apart. It's, it's different. It's other than. So when the children, thank you, Trevor, I appreciate that. When the children of Israel, when they, uh, when they decided uh, we're up against a great foe, we need a special advantage. They went and they took the Ark of the Covenant. And you, and you might say, well, I mean, it was, it was pretty much just like a chest like you'd have at your house, like a hope type chest, you know, maybe really not much bigger in dimensions. I mean, not, you know, maybe a little bit taller, perhaps uh, overlaid with gold. You got one like that? <laughs> I mean, the gold part, you say, well, they shouldn't touch it because it's gold. Uh, other thing, you're wearing gold. I got gold right here, as far as I know, right? <laughs> She's got gold on as far as I know. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not just that. It, well, it's just a box. It's just a box and it's got a lid and it's got a, it, I mean, it's got the angelic beans. But I mean, really, it's what's what's different about it. There's something sacred about it. There's something sacred about it because of who gave it to us, who gave it to Israel. And, and it's and it's sacred because of what it represents. And so they never should have touched it. They never should have taken it like they did, but they did. And, and what, what we're looking at is the ramifications of that. They, they didn't, can I use this word? They didn't really respect God's presence enough. They didn't really reverence God's um, holiness enough to allow His holiness to determine what type of application that they should make in the way that they approached the living God. They didn't make the application. That's what's been on my heart for a while. And, I, and I'm not going to just 
totally deal with that. But I believe there's something missing in many of our lives. And that would be application of holiness. You say, well, what's the, what's the big deal? Well, obviously what happened, let me just retell a little bit of the story. As they brought the Ark of the Covenant in, they, they thought that would just guarantee them a victory there against the Philistines. Well, they got, they got totally beat and 30,000 of the men died in battle in addition to the 4,000 that had already died. And so then the, the people of Philistia, the warriors are carrying off the Ark of the Covenant of God uh, down to their place at Ashdod and they display, that's what we came to last week, they displayed the Ark of the Covenant alongside a Dagon and basically put the Ark of the Covenant, and again, there's, this was not God's presence. Everybody understand that? But it represented God's presence among them. It represented his presence. And God said, I speak from between the cherubim. So, I mean, this was, this was the most sacred item in the tabernacle. And, and so they, the Philistines took it and they put it in their trophy case. Like we just beat another God. Well, the next morning, their God, little G, that wasn't his name, but that's who he was. <laughs> their little God, Dagon, was flat on his face in a position of submission. They came in and quickly picked Dagon off and dusted him off, picked him up and dusted him off and adjusted their God and came back the next morning only to find Dagon on his face again. Only the problem this time was he lost his face. He lost his head. He'd been decapitated during the night and his hands were gone. A symbol now not only of submission, but utter defeat. Because when you lose your head, it's done. <laughs> and so it appeared that the Lord Jehovah had been defeated by Dagon, the God of the Philistines. But when it seems like our great God has been defeated, it's only an appearance, it's not reality. Just like when Jesus was buried in the tomb, it seemed like the enemy had won, but he came forth victorious. And when the churches were being persecuted, it seemed like churches were being defeated, but really they were being victorious. And, and on and on we could go, and we did last week. And so what appeared to be defeat with God, the defeated God actually was his victory. And so now the Philistines are at a place where they're trying to figure out how do we get the ark of God back? Well, the reason they wanted to get the ark of God back in a hurry was because not only had the true living God defeated their God, but also he had caused them, some of them to die and he caused uh, many of them to suffer great pain with the Emirates. And so they were saying, well, it's happened here in this town in Ashdod. Let's send it down to, to Gath and then let's send it down to Ekron. And so they were trying to get rid of the ark as quick as they could. I, I'm not sure if I got the second city right, but you get the idea. I mean, they were moving it on to the next city because it was terrorizing them. They were uncomfortable with God's presence. Here, here's 
here's one thing that we ought to note this. When, when God brings some discomfort, he must be trying to get your attention in some way. And in this particular case, it really should have brought them to repentance. But sadly, they were uncomfortable with God enough to try to get rid of him, but they weren't uncomfortable with God enough to repent and turn to him. And following their national crisis, really nothing changed. They just went back to things as normal. Well, they had some God repair to do. Dagon repair. But pretty soon it was pretty much back to normal for the Philistines. Uh, I, before we explain what they did, I, I'd like to just say it's sad that we've been in a pandemic that we, even as the United States of America, have experienced a great measure of this. And yet, by all appearances, we've not turned to God. A national crisis should cause us to turn to God. Now, believers, I, I trust that you're still turning to God. We need to be crying out to God. But in many ways, our country has turned to masks and turned to vaccinations and turned to other means. And I'm not saying those are wrong. I'm just simply saying, hey, what we really need, this is, the, this is a bigger issue than just a physical issue. This is a spiritual issue that we, that we who know God, we ought to recognize, hey, this ought to be getting our attention in addition to Afghanistan, in addition to hurricane, in addition to on and on things go. Isn't it a sad thing when even you've experienced some discomfort you still don't turn to God. They said, let's just get God out of here. And, and I think I could make a pretty quick and easy case that in many ways, people living within our country, those who have a humanistic view of life, they look at Christianity as an obstacle to their agenda. And they'd like to do this. They'd like to get this God that's causing them discomfort of conviction. They'd like to get this God out of their national consciousness. consciousness and they'd like to get God out of the schools and out of the government and off of our buildings and out of our public awareness so that then we could go on and just live what kind of life we want to live. Let's get rid of God because he's causing us all this discomfort. Actually, we're causing our own discomfort. So let, let's just apply that before we move on. Um, if, if God is causing you to experience some measure of conviction, don't try to run from him and don't try to remove his influence from your life. But rather what you ought to do is humble yourself before God and say, God, I haven't shown you the type of respect of which you're due. And I thank you that you care enough about me that you're trying to get my attention. And so thus I want to humble myself before you. That'd be the right response right there. But that's not what the Philistines did. But I do notice this. They went to the diviners and, and, and the diviners, I mean, all of this just illustrates just how spiritually dark the land of Philist, Philistia was as they turned to the, the diviners, those that would read omens or that would be necromancers or, or that were dealing with the, basically the occult as we would know it. And they turned to them to say, what should we do here? Well, they said this, well, listen, don't send it back empty, send it with a trespass offering. But then the trespass offering that they came up with was graven images, which is an abomination to God. And they sent back these mice, little figurines of mice and the emeralds. And, and here's, here's one thing I thought here at this point. The, the lost world comes up with some rather bizarre ways of dealing with the problems of life. They do. 
But we shouldn't be surprised because they're lost. Send it back. But let's do this. Let's do a little test here. Okay, let's take two, two cows that are, that are still milking and nursing their calves. And let's, they've never pulled this cart before. And so let's tie them to the cart. And if the cows go on the straight and narrow, there's the connection. <laughs> That's not the real connection to the morning message. But if they go straight instead of turning to the right or to the left, and if they don't go back to their calves, which would be normal, or if they don't go back to their pasture, which would be normal. I mean, they never pulled before. They've never, they've never been under a yoke before. And they're milking now. They're, they're taking care of their calves. And their little calves, don't you know, are going to be bawling for them. You've been around any calves. They'll be bawling and for their mamas. And, and so they would, and they're going, they're lowing as they go. And so really the Philistines stack the odds in the favor, in the favor of, of coincidence that, that here it is, will prove once and for all that this wasn't really an act of God. This was just chance. Because they figured those cows are going to turn back to their young. Or they're not going to know how to pull and they'll get off track here and they won't go to Beth Shemesh. But here they go. The Bible says as they tied them up and watch this, they put the ark on a cart, which is a violation of what God said to do. They're not to pull the ark with the cart. Well, they wouldn't know that. They're Philistines. They didn't know better. That's how they did their God. So they just were still treating their God like they treated their gods. So they put him on a cart and they put the Images, the golden images, which is also an abomination. I mean, there's so much wrong here to wonder God doesn't wipe everybody off the map. And yet here they are really in a way that doesn't match the holiness of God. And yet even though, watch this, even though the Philistines had no mind to obey God, and even though the Israelites had no mind to obey God, the two cows did. And those two cows, I mean to tell you, they went lowing as they went, bellowing as they went, but they didn't turn to the right, they didn't turn to the left, they didn't listen to their calves, even though they were back there bawling, they just kept going straight on. And the one who made them made sure they knew how to get the Beshemesh. And they did. So there are those like the Philistines that are uncomfortable with the presence, the holy presence of God. And they try to remove the presence of the holy God and the influence of the holy God from their lives. But what caught my attention even more than that is the way that the people in Beth Shemesh responded. So they come into Beth Shemesh and here's the Beth Shemites and they are taking care of the wheat crop. And, um, and they see the ark of God coming and they rejoice. I mean, this is wonderful. The ark of God is coming again. And, and so they, they bring it and there's several things they do that actually all of them were a violation of how they're supposed to deal with the ark. You say, well, they probably were ignorant of that. They were Beshemites. The Beshemites, we read of it. This is a Levitical city. What do you mean? This is a city, this is a city of priests. This is a city of the Kohathites. As I did the study in Joshua chapter number 16, I believe it is in verse number 21. This is the Kohathites. This, these are the designated individuals of the tribe of Levi that live in a suburb in this area and their responsibility, their God-given responsibility was to transport the ark. 
along with all the other items, only there's a very particular way in which they were supposed to transport the ark, and there's ways that they were not supposed to transport the ark. And so I'm telling you, these were people who, given their history, now I realize this in the days of the judges, or it's after, after you know, when we're in the time of Samuel, but, but it's, I realize it's coming out of the days of the judges, and so there's spiritual darkness that is in the land, but I'm just simply saying this, here are people that ought to know better. Here are Kohathites of all people. I mean, if it come to the Benjamites or if it come to the Judah, to the tribe of Judah, to some other, other tribe, maybe we could give them some, some uh, leeway there and say, well, they just didn't understand. But the Kohathites of all people, of all people should have understood, we're not supposed to even touch this. In fact, we're not supposed to look at it. What did they do? Well, there's several things here they did. Okay. They took it. We'll get to this in just a minute, but they set it in a prominent place. But the first thing, let me, let me get to my notes here. Let me make sure I'm not going to miss something here. I'm, I was going to trust my memory and then I thought otherwise. Okay. Here's what they did. They offered a sacrifice in the field of Joshua, the best Shemite, which was a violation because that was not the place designated by God where they should offer sacrifice. That's violation number one. Because the book of Deuteronomy told them, take heed to thyself that you don't do sacrifice just wherever you think would be good. You say, well, wait a minute, isn't it okay? I mean, they had really good intentions and they're praising the Lord. And as long as they're praising the Lord and it's got the right words, isn't it okay? So they offered in a wrong place. Number two, they chopped up the ark for wood. No, I said it again. They they chopped up the cart for wood and slaughtered and offered up as a burnt offering the two cows. You say, well, what's wrong with that? According to Leviticus chapter 1 and verse number 3, in his offering, if his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. They were not supposed to offer cows. They were supposed to offer males, not females. You say, well, gender doesn't matter. <laughs> so that was violation number two. In other words, they had no grounds to decide that God would be okay sacrificing a different gender as a burnt offering. They had no grounds to decide that. And yet they did. Number three, they placed the ark upon a high stone, a great stone. I would imagine, you know, here they are out in this wheat field and, and maybe there was an elevated place and upon that was a great rock. And they put the ark of the covenant there along with the chest that contained the images, which that's actually another violation that they utilize 
the little mice and the emeralds, which God says a violation, don't make unto you. Oh, hang on, wait a minute. Here's another violation. And I, I, listen, I'm not just trying to find stuff, but it's there. They made, a, they made images of mice, which according to Leviticus chapter number 11, is on the unclean list. They, I mean, really making any kind of an image of any kind of an animal in terms of worship is off limits, but especially a mouse that's an unclean animal. There's another violation. Graven images, that's a violation. But that they set the ark up in a prominent place for everybody to see. For everybody to see, you say, well, what's the deal with that? Well, according to Numbers chapter number four and verses four and five, whenever the children of Israel were going to move from one place to the other and they were in the tabernacle, then Aaron and his sons, or after Aaron passed off the scene, the high priest would come and he alone and they alone would take the veil, the veil that separates the most holy place from the, from the holy place. So the holy of holies and then you got the holy place. They're to take the veil down and put it over the ark of the covenant and then they're to take badger skins and put over that and then over that they're supposed to take a, 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 um, a blue uh, garment and put over that in other words it's to be triply covered and not visible to the people of Israel and God says I don't even want them to see it so that they took the ark of the covenant and put it up in a prominent place they were treating that which was holy as though it were just kind of common you say, but preacher, their intentions were so good. They're trying to praise the Lord here. They're treating that which is sacred as though it was any other item. They weren't even supposed to see the exterior of it. It's another violation. An additional violation was this. And the one that cost them so dearly was that they looked into the ark. It has the lid. To be able to look into the lid, I don't know if you knew this. Let me see if I can move this here. In other words, their good intentions were not compensating for lack of obedience to God's word. Somebody had to move the lid. So they touched it. I don't know how many of them touched it. I'm not sure which man it was that, that basically took it and removed the lid. Are you following me? And began to treat it just like anything else that was in their land. But, but they, and I don't know, I mean, 50,000, 70 people that, that came by and they, they looked in it. They were treating that which was holy in an irreverent way. Well, but I mean, they were just rejoicing. The problem is that they were acting just like the people that God were casting out of the land. And God had warned them 
I'm not like the gods of the land. Don't treat me like I'm like the gods of the land. And if you live in this immoral way, Leviticus 18, I'll spew you out of the land just like I'm going to spew the people that inhabit the land that are caught up in homosexuality and bestiality and fornication and incest. God says, I'll treat you the exact same way. 50,070 died. In fact, in many ways, we could say this, their sin was even worse than the Philistines because they knew better. And that's why in verse number 20, the emphasis is there is who is able to stand before this holy Lord God. God was totally good. God was totally without evil. He must be kept separate from that which does represent evil. And what has happened here in this, in this text, and what we see is a lack of respect towards God. And we see this, that the Philistines, as well as the Israelites, experience God's judgment. Why? Because they failed to apply God's holiness to the way they approached Him. And in many ways, God's own people became enemies of His holiness rather than allies of His holiness. They were lacking respect. They were lacking application. They disregarded what the Word said to formulate their own plans about how they'd go about serving God and worshiping God and praising God. One man said this, our culture does not help us to smash our graven image of the casual God. Our culture proclaims that God must be the essence of tolerance. He's rather chummy than holy. We may realize, he went on to say, that the casual God that we've been worshiping simply does not exist. The casual God does not exist. Warren Wiersbe said, in today's Western society, with its informality and lack of respect for the sacred, it's easy even for believers to get so chummy with the Lord that they forget how high and lifted up He is. What I'm afraid of is that we can treat that which is sacred as though it's just kind of common. Well, what, what is sacred today? I mean, that was then. What's sacred today? The Ark of the Covenant was sacred then. What's sacred today? Sundays are sacred to God. Set apart to God. This is the Lord's day. You're in the right place to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. And, and I, I believe that you're endeavoring to try to give God the type of respect that He's worthy of. And we ought to be very careful that we continue to do that and not treat God as though He's our buddy. But that we reverence Him 
And that's the reason why that we don't want music up here that sounds anything like the world. And there's a real danger that, that in, in modern Christianity, what has happened is that we fail to apply verses about God's holiness to the worship and the praise of Almighty God. He is still holy, friend, and, and that's why we must continue to be holy in all of our manner of conversation, including the music that you listen to. We've got to be careful right there. I, I don't think that we should treat a church service just like any other event. You've got your phone with you right now. I mean, you're tuned in. I'm so glad about that. I don't see anybody checking their phone. They're sure not going to now. But we are so tied to our tech, tech that we've lost connection with the text. And I just want to remind everybody here, every now and then I think God gives us opportunity to kind of clear off a spot to remind us all, hey, this is a church service. I need to be totally tuned into what's going on here. And I don't need to be secretly checking the score on my watch. I don't need to be going through who just texted me. I don't need to go see who posted this or posted that. And you sure ought not post something while you're here in a church service. Amen. You sure ought not check what scores are going on. You sure ought not send a text to somebody that's here in the church service. In fact, you ought to pay attention to the text that's in your, in your possession right there in your hands. I'm telling you, listen, we're, we're here to give our attention to a holy and a righteous God that pays attention to how we go about serving him. And so it's not right for you to, to be talking amongst yourself or, or to be passing notes amongst yourself or, or to be thinking even about the next week and maybe planning out some things or ordering online what you need or putting in your Walmart pickup while you're in a church service. I'm not saying that's going on, but it just better not. Because he's still a holy God and we can't treat that which is sacred as a service as though it's just some kind of common thing with people kind of getting up and going and getting back in and getting up and going. Now, every now and then I realize you got to ease out from a service. But listen, this is not a ball game here where you go in and out just as you please. This is not a movie theater where you go in and out, which you ought not be in anyways, where you, you go in and out anyway, anyway, anytime you please. No, this is a sacred church service where we're trying to give our attention to a holy, holy, holy God who certainly deserves our undivided attention every time we gather together. We just can't treat that which is sacred as though it's just kind of common. And that's why we have lights here that are bright and walls here that are bright or that are dark and, and gothic and, and like a, a, a music or a movie theater. No, 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 because this is not a performance. This is a service to the living and true God that also comes back to us when he speaks to our hearts and we want to be in such a way that God, I don't want to treat you like you're just any other person because you're high and holy and above all that. And they face God's displeasure. They face God's judgment because they did not apply holiness to the way that they were approaching God and a church service. And any time really the church gathers is a sacred time. And I realize there are people that do work jobs that necessitate perhaps as officers or et cetera, et cetera. But as much as lies within you, listen, don't, don't slack off on church attendance, but rather do this. This is a sacred time for me and my family. We're going to be in the house of God. We're not going to be at the ball game. We're not going to be out on the lake. We're not going to be watching the Super Bowl. We're going to church because it's church time. This is a sacred time. You better treat it that way. 
God wants us to treat it that way. And, and while we do, I mean, I think it's right that we, that we try to put our best foot forward in the way that we appear. I'm not saying we try to outdress anybody because then we start shining on ourselves. No, it ought to be on him. But the way that you dress affects your attitude as well. And so we ought to dress in such a way that certainly, that certainly is not immodest because we could go back to the book of God and see that he's against immodesty. You say, boy, that's so wrong that they lifted that ark up and it's so wrong that they peeked in there and it's so wrong that they, that they offered up those, those milch kine and it's so wrong that they didn't offer up a, a bull sacrifice. Hey, listen, that's exactly right, but if we're not careful, we too who know better than this, you who know better than this, can either dress in modestly in a way that draws attention to yourself it's just not right. Since you asked about it. It's just not right. Music for God is to be sacred and holy. A church service is sacred to God and ought to be set apart unto Him. Is everybody getting this? Young people, listen, this is so important for you. And I, and I appreciate the way that you try to pay attention in a church service. You really do. You're tuned in. That's really good because a lot of teenagers your age are not trying to pay attention to a church service. But I'm telling you, this is God's time. And he's trying to speak to you. And the same is true for everybody that's here. But, but listen, we can become flippant about church services if we don't pay attention to who it is that we're coming before. And we can fail to apply that which is about his holiness to the way that he ought to be served. I saw it happen. I saw it happen in my, with my own eyes as, as, as uh, things were trending and churches were allowing uh, groups like, and music from groups like Skillet. A skillet's something you fry an egg in. But this, this edgy and, and it's getting edgier and edgier. Hey, what's happening? Well, many are failing to apply God's holiness. And suddenly the service looks much more like a rock service than it does a holy church service. I'm just telling you, he deserves to be praised with music better than that. He deserves it. Your body is sacred. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you're saved tonight, your body is set apart to God. In other words, your body's not for just common use. No, it's, it's there for use, but it's there for his use. And, and you ought to be careful the way that you treat your body. Whether it's what we put into our body, and that's why alcohol is so wrong for the believer, because we know better. It's not, it's not helping you, and cigarettes are bad for you, and tobacco's bad for you, and, and, and listen, I, I mean, it's, and, and marijuana's bad for you. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives within you. And, 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 and uh, some of you are saved out of the world and you wish there's things about even your body you could go back and change. But listen, this is the temple of the Holy Spirit and you ought to treat it that way. You say, well, I got a tattoo that's got Bible verses on it. He said, not do that. And I, that's the reason I said a moment ago, there are some that wish they could and, and could, go, could change all that. And I realize, and I thank God, God is able to save anybody out of anything. Thank God for that. But I'm just saying this mentality that it doesn't really matter. It's my body. It's not your body. It's not your body. And cutting your body is not right. That doesn't honor God and it's not right to do that. It's not your body to cut. No. And you say, well, there's pain in my life. Well, listen, take it to the Lord. And when he says he loves you, then believe him. And don't use your body for fornication. 
These eyes are sacred. These these eyes are supposed to be set apart unto God. And if you're trying to fulfill sexual fulfillment outside of the bounds of marriage, then listen, friend, you're using what God set apart as holy for your own purposes. And it's no different than those of Veshemites that were doing their own thing. And you look at the book, chapter and verse, and you see that, that as he which is called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversations, and that you're supposed to keep your vessel, your body, in sanctification and honor. And this is the, it doesn't get any plainer than this, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you keep yourself from fornication. That includes pornography. That includes relationships. Marriage is sacred. And God does not smile and and sweep under the rug those that work around his plan. It's sacred. It's set apart for God's use. If you're married tonight, don't treat your marriage like it's just any common old thing. Well, when you got married, you're real careful in the way that you talk to her, right? I'm assuming you were because you got married. (laughs) How's that? Well, now that you're married, doesn't give you license to talk down to her. Right? And you got married, dear lady, and I would imagine that you were probably very respectful to him because you got married. He wouldn't have married you otherwise. Let's see, he was delusional. <laughs> so don't, don't be disrespectful now because you're to be in a one flesh relationship. Would, why would you do that to your own flesh? You know better. There's a breakdown somewhere. There's a breakdown, whether we're talking about family life, church life, work life, whatever, the life of a Christian. There's a breakdown somewhere, and I'm telling you, it's not here. It's not here. The breakdown's not here because they could have went back to the Old Testament and they could have went to somebody that knew. And I think they did know, but they did their own thing. They could have went back to what thus saith the Lord and everything would have been a-okay. And I'm telling you, if we just go back to what thus saith the Lord, there's no breakdown right here. There's a disconnect when we set the word aside and we do what we want to do. And then you're facing God's displeasure rather than God's favor. Because there's a failure to apply God's holiness in the way that we go about life. You get it? It could be you've become too familiar with God. Too comfortable with church services. It's just kind of old. Right there is where you're in great danger. And you need to remember who he is and what he's done and reverently come before him 
and ask for forgiveness and ask you to ask him to give you a heart for his holiness. And as you do, I believe you begin to make forward progress. Because this all shows us the picture of why the nation needed revival. They'd grown so spiritually indifferent and cold that they were no longer connecting God's holiness to the way they were personally living their life. And they needed a revival. And thank God, he sent Samuel, who began to bring about a revival. There's still a lot of things to work out. Because they're going to go on and say, we'd like to have a king like all the other nations. But they didn't go to the book to get how to get the king. It's the book. It's the word of God that'll help your life. But you got to take it and apply it. It'll do you no good if you don't take it and apply it. Let's stand together here tonight. This book is sacred because of who gave it to us. You say, well, it's just a book with ink in it. It's different than any other book. This is his church. It's just like any other building in Oklahoma City. This is his church. It's different than any other organization. It's not just an organization. It's a blood-bought body of believers that have been baptized and set apart to the work of the gospel. And that's why we're careful about what baptisms we receive here and how we go about the Lord's Supper and, and how we go about local church ministry because this is not any of our churches. It's the Lord's church. God, um, I want to thank you for this text here and how it spoke to my heart and I trust it spoke to others, Lord, if we've tried to make it clear and plain. Lord, we need a regular reminder that you are the thrice holy God and that we ought to fear you and reverence you and be an ally of your holiness rather than an enemy in any way. I pray that you'd help us here tonight to reverently respond the message. Dear God, I thank you for our church family. I thank you for people that understand the things that have just been preached, and there may be some that are new to all this, but God, I know that by and large, this is where the church has been, but I believe, God, we'd all agree that we need to be mindful of this, and we need to apply this to our lives, and I pray that you'd help us publicly and privately in the way that we respond. So please help us here tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we are standing here tonight and we prepare for invitation, God has spoke to your heart. Please step out.